fellow adventurers, I'm Josie Thompson and welcome to You Can Shine podcast where I explore real stories of real people just like you and I who have faced adversities and trials and won. Today I'm here with Nathan Cavalieri. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. I first knew of Nathan from my younger years as a mad Hey Hey It's Saturday fan and he was this young cool kid who could really play the guitar. I thought he was awesome. And I became an instant fan, especially when I saw him play against another legendary guitarist, Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits, who actually described his playing as unbelievable. And that's what I thought too. Nathan actually began playing guitar at the tender age of five. What you may not know is that by the age of six, he was diagnosed with leukemia and he continued playing guitar to take his mind off the disease. He received chemo treatment and by May 93, he was in remission. Now he was regarded as a child prodigy and was later trained by, and at the age of 13, eventually toured with B.B. King. And King described him as the future of the blues. He's worked with Jimmy Barnes, with Diesel, with Tommy Emmanuel, and his debut album peaked at number 33 on the ARIA albums chart. By 2012, Nathan started having serious health concerns, which I'm sure he'll talk with us about today. And he undertook activities away from music, like surfing and meditation. He returned to the stage in 2019, and he has a national tour coming up, and I'll put all the details in the notes below. Um, and it's called Demons. And he was signed by Michael Jackson's label at the age of 12. Now, this album is pretty special and it features themes of how humans crumble, melt, face, overpower, surrender, run and dance with our demons. Nathan is partner to Amy and a proud father of two. He was also, a fun fact about Nathan is he was a Brickies labourer for five years and he's just a good old-fashioned hearted bloke. So welcome, Nathan Cavalieri. Thank you so much for having me. What an intro. <laughs> I am one of your biggest fans, believe me. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Nathan, I've done a bit of a rundown about some of your career highlights. Um, tell us about your real story, you know, the story underneath who he is. Nathan Cavalieri and what are some of the formative experiences that have really shaped your life? Yeah, sure, sure. Well, when I started playing guitar, I mean, that was, that was to bring joy to my life. And it, it was, you know, it came about with like childhood sort of wonderment and excitement and a lot of fire. And, and, you know, I just, I'd look up to my idols like Mark Knopfler, not, uh, Mark Knopfler or Diesel. And I just wanted to be that. I wanted to do that. Um, but I suppose my, my relationship with music deepened as a result of being sick because it wasn't so much about um, just about um, playing to make me happy, but it kind of got me in the habit of, of expressing myself. You know, it was, a, it was, the guitar was a way that I could express my emotions and digest my emotions um, beyond what words could do. And I probably didn't realize that until much later in life. So having that anchor 
um, throughout the, the day during such, you know, painful and challenging experiences was, I feel like was quite an important part of the healing process and one that you could never measure how much that had, you know, a, um, healing components to it. But in my heart, I definitely believe um, that that was a major, major player. Um, and then having that experience with the Starlight Foundation, because that's how I ended up meeting Mark Knopfler. Again, that was like, like a beacon, you know? So when there, there is this extra sense of purpose, you know, when you wake up in the morning, like as a kid, I didn't know what I was fighting for um, because they kept me in the dark, which is a good thing. Um, so what am I fighting for? What am I moving through all that pain? Why, why am I deciding to say yes to the day? So things like playing guitar and also my family was an incredible beacon as well. But then having that, you know, that date booked in to meet my idol, you know, and, and all the little other things that Starlight Foundation would do, like having the Starlight Room. And I mean, all that's grown since, since the um, super late 80s, early 90s. But all of those things helped me to, um, yeah, to, to say yes to whatever pains I had to deal with to get to the other side and, and, and be, you know. So, Nathan, I mean, you're just a kid. You know, you're this, you're a kid. And, you know, if you look at any footage of you playing, even as that small child, you had this fierce connection to your instrument, to the emotions that this instrument, you know, elicited in you. So this connection was quite deep from a very young age. And you talked about, you know, being able to process your pain through this. Tell me more about that. I mean, yeah, people would look at that and go, what do you mean? How does a child know how to do that? Like, what did you feel into? What did you sense? Yeah, that's a great question. And one I haven't really pulled apart. Um, I, you know, when you, when, if you were to ask my parents, they'd say that my ability wasn't natural, but my passion and connection was with the guitar. Mm. I suppose I'm probably a lot more emotional. Like my brother is the super pragmatic, you know, logical he balances me out and I, <laughs> yeah. And I operate more from my emotions, which I've learned over the years to kind of balance all that out. But naturally I'd have this charge, whatever that charge is, you know, whether it's anger and frustration or whether it's deep sadness, or I would just pick up the guitar. And I mean, sometimes there might not even necessarily, well, particularly while I was learning, um, be anything musically fantastic. Like it would, but that charge would just come through my fingers and through my body. And I just kept doing it. And then my abilities, as I improved my skills, then that allowed me to express it even more in a way that um, translated. I, I would get that, you know, often, uh, you know, between the age of, of, of 10 to 15, I feel like, you know, it was so deep, my connection with the guitar. And I'd have have other artists say how how can you play blues music like you've you know lived for 60 years and I feel like a lot of that has got to do with um going through leukemia okay so you really felt a connection to the music through not just sensorily through your body but this relationship with your disease as well yeah because it gave me I mean I suppose it forced me to grow up uh, um, a lot earlier uh, so those traumatic experiences, you know, most kids n never had them. Um, so I, I felt what I felt and I'd pick up the guitar and 
I would express that feeling through my guitar. That's, and that's a really powerful way of expressing it instead of housing it in your body, right? Yeah. Well, as I, as I, you know, have, have, have learned more through other experiences, I've, I've realized how important it is in all the different ways we can um, digest our emotions and the idea of just denying them and, and bottling them up to carry on, you know, with your day, just how, um, dangerous that can actually be and uh, to, particularly to your your physical health physical and mental health I suppose yeah mm. so do you think that like from when you picked up the guitar you said it wasn't talent but drove you it was passion mm. and then all of a sudden you have this this physical uh, disease to to battle did you actually comprehend this the the magnitude of what you were up against here what you were actually about to need to battle for no not at all I mean it was it was not language that was used around the house my parents were uh, firm believers in in um, me sort of encouraging me to follow my bliss and um, to be around um, positive inspirational people as well Mm. Um, so I think at that age to understand like the realities um, would not have been helpful at all Mm. Um, so, so, so it was music and inspiration for you? Yeah, that was a beacon. Absolutely. The music. Um, so my, my beacons was my, uh, the music and everything related to that. Um, not just playing, but the idea of performing um, and living out my dreams, uh, my family. Yeah. And, um, and then, yeah, the Starlight Foundation. It is pretty mind-blowing when I think about it, how like I was touring and I was on tv and doing all those performances while i was going through leukemia and being treated for it Mm. where did that energy come from that's the only thing i can think of is um, i was just driven by my passions that's what was fueling me Mm. so did you get scared were you frightened at any time going through i think okay so here's where i'm coming from Mm. i'm also a cancer survivor i've had um, a couple of battles with cancer not leukemia i've had um thyroid cancer and then brain tumors Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as children, I do a lot of work with childhood cancer support, sure. and I see a lot of children with cancer. And these kids are the most resilient people I have ever met in my mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And they just pick up and keep going. They don't yeah. dwell on the fact that they've lost a limb or they can't yeah. do certain things. They focus on what they can do. Yeah. And I think from what I'm hearing, and I'd love to hear your, you know, your true yeah. experience of it, is that you just kept connecting with your bliss and what inspired you. And it really raised your frequency, your vibration and helped you overcome your disease to become well. 100%. Um, There was probably, when you ask, were there any times where I was scared? I think that as far as my challenge went was uh, there were these regular lumbar punches that I had to, to carry out. And at the, they didn't want to put me out. And so it was an incredibly painful experience and one that I, I had to take on weekly. That's as far as my fear took me. And that was a pretty bloody intense fear. And, I, and it's probably the reason why I, I had to do a lot of unwiring much later in life in uh, how I can fall into patterns of anticipation over catastrophizing and all that type of stuff. So that was very much the, my mindset when I was a kid going through that. I'd count down the days and then the hours until I had to be on, uh, on, the, um, on the table for a lumbar puncher. So, but at the same time, I feel like 
consistently getting to the other side of the lumbar puncture is also what made me so resilient as well. Um, is that when you face incredible fear and you get to the other side of it and the high, you know, and each time it just gets easier and easier, that's something you, you carry with you forever. So that's an important skill. So what did you tap into? What did you access to actually get to the other side? Uh, it, 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 it was actually, it was probably a mix of things. It was the strength of, of the energies around me, the strength being my mom, mm. my dad, and the, the doctors. I feel like people probably underestimate the importance of having a doctor that has a good optimistic energy. And Luch Delaposa, um, my oncologist, had that. You know, he was really can-do, vibrant, lots of humor. He was I believed in him, right? You have to believe, you have to believe, you have to take it on with that sense of faith. And that was the other thing was just this, still this faith within myself that I could somehow, I don't know how, get to the other side of, of that operation or whatever it was that I was taking on. And that mixed with the purpose of, all right, I just got to do this and then I can go play my guitar. I just, mm. just do it. And then I can already imagine myself playing the guitar. So I feel also like the, um, I've always had a really vivid imagination um, I'm a creative, so that's the imagination working for me mm. as well. Yeah. So if you could talk to this, the nine-year-old, the ten-year-old mm -hmm. that went through all of that mm -hmm. now as an adult self, yeah, you know, what what would you say to that that child that went through all of that? I think probably the 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 unresolved say conflict or issue that I've probably carried up until recently when um, a friend of mine asked the same question was just reassurance was just faith it's you know that it is it's okay you might not be able to see the path but the path is there putting one foot in front of the other and just have faith and and doing a little bit of work with that sort of inner child has been really important for me um today actually so i just sit back and i i see you know any child at that age and go whoa how mm. brave mm. you know how resilient how incredibly strong you had to be yeah. to not just go through the painful part of it but then to rise mm. and to perform for mm. all these other people and I think having that genuine passion for your craft was definitely something that inspired you to just lift up from the fear into that faith zone. 100% and then because it, uh, performing was something that I loved mm. it was it was a fuel it wasn't like more work that I had mm. to do it, it fueled me it gave me um, even more life so then this next next chapter came mm. which couldn't have been predicted what happened yeah well I towards the end of um, the 2000s uh, towards 2010 um, I think I just had a bit of a, a mortality real like a realization mm. maybe there was a bit of latency there <laughs> 15 years late yeah. um, but it, it happened more just from losing friends around me because I felt I carried this belief within me after I got to the other side of, of leukemia that I was invincible. I could take on anything. And, and the idea of, of passing on is something, you know, that happens when you're old and I can't even imagine myself being old. I've got plenty of time. I, the concept of time didn't even really exist mm -hmm. until I started seeing, you know, a friend losing a friend and then another friend. And then, you know, um, your age, right? Your age. Uh, 
Yeah, that's right. In throughout my twenties mm-hmm. and, and then my, my grandparents, I lost my grandparents. And so the, it, there was just this time where there was a lot of death around me and uh, which then I remember having this, uh, I remember the moment where, it, where I probably had my first anxiety attack. Now I know what it is. Mm-hmm. I was just sitting in the car after a day laboring. I just thought to myself, one day I'm not going to be here. And I started to hyperventilate and I didn't know what that, that was. So I felt these foreign sensations, which to me felt like I was leaving my body in that, in that moment, which only fueled the fear even more. And, and uh, the more I started to, to have those sort of anxiety attacks, um, I, I knew that they were related to, to my fear of death, but I had lost that connection. And then I began to fear the fear. So I would have an anxiety attack in whatever environment. It could be at the pub. It could be with a friend or whatever. Then I'd avoid the situations where I, I felt those anxiety attacks. And, and, and I, avoid, I avoided the, the conversations around death and mortality. So I kept running, running from wherever made me uncomfortable until eventually my world just got really, really small. There's only so much running you can do. And that's just because I, I wasn't educated. I didn't know. How to, how to deal with fear. I didn't know how to process it. And then one day it ended up corrupting the, the one, that one place, my special place, which was the stage. And I remember playing a festival uh, down in Victoria. And this was about two years into having insomnia because it was hijacking my, my sleep as well. I was afraid to sleep. Um, so I was averaging three hours a night. Um, and night terrors, just not not good three hours either. And uh, so I was trying to tour like this. I had a day job, I had a mortgage. I was trying to tour outside of my day job. And I do this festival down in Victoria. And I felt particularly depleted and out of my body, just completely spaced out and feeling derealization and all sorts of uncomfortable sensations. And I just tried to push through it like I normally would got on stage things were okay up until about the second second or third last song and then I just I hit the ground I I had this this slight blackout and I I opened up my eyes and I couldn't really hear anything I had pins and needles through my body and um and then I ran off stage and I just tried to catch my breath and the only thing that got me back up on stage was that I didn't want to let anybody down and um so i i pushed myself to get back up on stage i finished the song i did it and instead of celebrating the fact that i got to the other side i had the biggest panic attack i've ever had because i i realized that in an hour's time i had to do another one and a half hour set um at another stage and yeah i felt you know alienated um it was it was a really really, really dark time. And that's my relationship with the stage has never been the same since. Because mm. it's always a place that I could, you know, no matter how I felt, especially going through chemo, you get up on stage and I've got superpowers. And that was gone from mm. that moment. So uh, I tried to tour in that condition for about six months. And I was like, I got to, I got to stop. I got to work out what's going on. And, um, and, and luckily I did. 
Nathan, uh, can I just acknowledge you for your vulnerability and your authenticity, even in sharing that story? I mean, I could really feel, I really feel what you must have been going through during that time. For me, what I'm hearing is it almost feels like, you know, as a child, your kind of your awareness is very much in present moment experience. And then as we get get older, we start to ruminate in our head probably a bit too much. And then these stories that we tell ourselves end up kind of materialising as these thoughts that, that we think are real and we think are facts. And it almost sounds like a form of post-traumatic stress it's almost like it just caught up with your adult self who then went holy crap do you realize what you've been through and do you realize (laughs) and then all of a sudden the body goes shit this is huge you are exactly right it is definitely it was definitely a post-traumatic stress orientated pattern and um and i knew nothing about mindfulness i knew nothing about how our thoughts affect our body um nothing about any of this. so i couldn't manage it uh and you are right i think as kids we're just a lot more present we haven't lived enough life to to fear it <laughs> as much uh until you get older and and um and that was one one of the many things i had to learn that um during my recovery you know it wasn't just a mental thing and getting psychological help but it was also there were things going on in my body physically that um you know thankfully i found the world of integrative medicine and clinical nutrition and and that trying to find out the the reasons for why i was feeling daily like chronic fatigue and on this roller coaster of fatigue and dread and anxiety and depletion Um, that was hard because every doctor that every doctor that I went to kept saying to me, your bloods are fine. Everything is fine. You know? And, you know, they, they, they were the doctors that, you know, saved my life when I was a kid, that, that, that sort of type of practice. But um, unfortunately they couldn't do much for me um, uh, during that phase. Mm, So Nathan, what, what, what worked? I mean, you, you hit the ground literally and you really wanted to push forward, but you now had this new battle that was more than physical, right? Mm-hmm. So so what worked for you to get through that? Yeah, it was a combination of things. So I remember getting a my final blood test from my, my family GP. And again, this was yeah about a year and a half to two years into battling this, and and I was really at my end. Like, I just I couldn't. The idea of living like this that forever was just I couldn't comprehend it. And on paper, you'd think I'd be the happiest person ever, because I had I was living near the beach, an amazing fiance, um, making good money from playing music, and had a great family, and like. I was kind of like, yet I, I feel like this, what is going on? And, and when the doctor said, and I was just kind of, I know this sounds a bit weird, but I was hoping that something would show up, yes. had an answer. Mm. And, and he turned to me with, you know, big smiles. Well, you know, your, your bloods, bloods are perfect. There's, there's nothing on going on here. And I walked out and I remember just breaking down to, to Amy and I just said, I can't live like this. Mm. And, and this is where the world, I, I feel like the ways of the world just kind of work their magic because 
I had remembered that a life coach spoke of her mom, who was a clinical nutritionist. And she said to me, you know, don't underestimate the nutrition, biochemistry, and how it affects your emotions and your brain and blah. And I just, I just trivialized it. I was like, nah, because to me, like nutrition is what you, you might go to a nutritionist if you're an athlete or just to perform that a little bit better, you know? So I trivialized it and I just thought that that thought popped into my head. And so I gave her a call, her mum a call, and I told her everything. She said, send through the bloods. And I sent through those same blood tests from my, um, my doctor. And she called me straight away and she go, she said, Oh, Nathan, your body is not working for you at all. It's you are not in a good place. I can tell. And, and she said, there is so much we can do here. This, everything is just out of whack. Let's do this. And it was just like an angel, you know, it was, I'd never forget that feeling where I, where I, all of a sudden I had hope and, and faith. And it was a, quite a process. So between her and the integrative medicine doctor, they worked on my gut health. They educated me on so much, the, the relationship between um, the gut and your brain, your emotions, all that stuff. Um, so we, we worked through that without going into detail. And that, that was probably the better part of a year. You know, I discovered stuff that was going on in my system that, that now I go, my God, how, did I, how was I living like that? <laughs> And, um, but then I also got psychological help as well. So a psychologist who educated me on mindfulness to deal with those post-traumatic stress patterns. I mean, I learned beyond the, what was taught to me by my professionals through listening to podcasts and surrounding myself with stories like yourself, inspirational people who might've battled something similar to, to me and gotten to the other side. And, mm. and, you know, it's amazing. Like sometimes one sentence that somebody would say just changes your life. And so I was listening to a lot of Tim Ferriss. I was listening to um, a, a mindfulness, um, sort of more of a, a Buddhist, uh, but Western uh, psychologist, Tara Brock. Yeah. And yeah, and each little bit of, you know, lesson that I would learn, I would just apply it the next day. Joe, uh, actually, Dr. Joe Dispenza. Oh, he's a legend. Yeah, yeah. He? I knew when you said, um, you know, you move in a world of neuroscience, I thought, oh, well, you would know him. Yeah. So I remember a meditation coach playing me a clip of his on the three brains and he explains how how change occurs and how you can consciously change how you feel and and how it works near like um up in the brain you know and it was very pragmatic and that man that changed my life that clip mm. you know that's what made me go i'm not stuck like this forever and i, I just went to work i went to work and and bit by bit now i can't even literally identify with with how i used to be like and every now and then I'll have a little speed hump, but the, my perspective has completely changed. Mm. Well, you've clearly learned lots of things. You've clearly accessed resources that have enabled you and really supported you to get to where you are today. What are some of the, the, the key things? If people are listening to this story right now and going, oh, my God, it sounds like me. Mm. I'm having panic attacks. I'm not mm. sleeping well and I'm not feeling too well. What are some of the big things that you've learned? Yeah, that I've learned. Um, mm. Wow. Um, I've learned so much. Okay. Firstly, um, well, one, just something as simple as impermanence. You're not stuck like this. You're not stuck. It feels like you are stuck. And even if yesterday feels like the same day as today and you're battling the same, you know, same thing over and over again, that you can consciously change through changing your thoughts. You can change how you feel, right? 
by challenging those beliefs that are that are blocking you definitely not to underestimate your thoughts and how the effect that they have on your body and and an, a simple example of that is you know <laughs> uh, we can turn ourselves on our biochemistry completely sh- changes if we were to have a, a steamy thought right or if you're in the car and you're just remembering that time that somebody you know, what they said to you or what they said to a loved one and it really pisses you off and you all of a sudden you feel it through your body. I mean, that's an example of how a thought can affect your body chemically, right? Straight away. Straight away, yeah. So um, paying a little bit more attention to the things that you're believing. I think mindfulness and being self-aware is incredible. I think that's something that should be taught from a very, very young age. I mean, that a lot of those lessons, I was like, how did I not know that? What? How? I'm not my thoughts. What? <laughs> You're not your thoughts, and they're things that you can you can manage and work with and and relate to as if it was another person. You know, they're not you. So, but going back to the child, you know, at eight or nine or ten, you're not even thinking about your thoughts. You're just living right. life, right? It's, it's right. a direct experience. It's only when we get older that we start living more with our head yeah. that we start getting entangled in these. narratives that we make up that are not accurate and one of my all-time favorite strategies that I share with my my tribe is that you know I get them to literally look up to the sky and smile and I go when you look up and smile and try this now Nathan tell me how you (laughs) smile I'm already feeling it (laughs) cheesy smile and then try to be depressed at the same time you can't you You, can't you can't do it yeah, because the right. second that you you raise your your head up and start smiling, your eyebrows shoot up as well, mm. and a tiny burst of dopamine gets released yeah. in <laughs> prefrontal cortex, and it changes the chemistry yeah. in your body. Yeah. You can't be depressed and happy at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And as a child, you can have a rant and you're over it in the next second, you know. But mm. as adults, we carry it over, right? Yeah. We carry it over and over and over and we hang on to these emotions and thoughts that keep yeah. us down. And so you've learned now strategies to unhook from those yep. states and actually step into, you know, more elevated spaces. Yeah, yeah? absolutely. The other uh, was, to, and this is the, these are the psychological takeaways uh, for me, but my relationship with fear was quite faulty. So learning how to lean in more, learning how to like acceptance. When I'd read a book, acceptance and self-compassion were always the chapters that I'd skip. I just skip forward to Boring. more fear. <laughs> let's, let's talk more about fear and depression and, and insomnia. No, no, I don't want none of this like self-compassion and, and acceptance crap until I finally read those chapters and also, you know, bit by bit hearing it around. And I just, mm. I was like, whatever you resist persists, mm. you know? So my goal was no longer, as soon as I shift my goal from, I need to manage myself so I don't feel fear or as much fear. As soon as I took my, myself away from that to how do I learn how to be with fear? How do I stay grounded and continue to put one foot in the front of the other whilst feeling fear? How do I, how do I make peace with feeling uncomfortable in general? Because I remember somebody saying growth doesn't happen inside of a comfort zone. So then I realized, well, if growth doesn't happen inside of a comfort zone, that means I really do need to, to start to master being uncomfortable. So, um, and bit by bit, just baby steps, putting me myself in situations that were uncomfortable, uh-huh. um, particularly ones that triggered fear. And the more I did, and the more I had this lean in attitude 
with a strategy, not just, you know, putting myself into it and re-traumatizing myself, but with a strategy, then I would wake up in the morning and it'd be, it'd be more like, all right, if, if fear surfaces, I'll, I'm going to take it on. Mm. And, um, and when, it, and then when it kind of sweeps me up, I know what to do. I've got a strategy for it. You know, I know how to accept, I know it, how to allow it to be there and it, and, and it comes and it goes. So you sought psychological help. You've got a new relationship with emotions and states yeah. of being. You got help with your nutrition mm-hmm. as well. Was there anything else that really helped you on this journey? Um, I think the, the further I got through it, uh, the more I realized that the body was communicating to me. Like it was, it was screaming at me for years. I just didn't listen. I wasn't in touch with my body. And now I had to, to fix it. So now I operate under the belief that, that um, if, if I'm feeling dissonance um, or pain or whatever it is within my body and, and it's something that keeps coming up, then there's a lesson to be learned. There's at my body, my mind, whatever it is, is trying to tell me something. And I've got to find out what that is. So then when you do, you start to realize that you've got this guide like you're, you're this compass and it becomes less like a battle and more just like a puzzle that you've got to solve. That's, that was, that was really important. You know, then you describe your relationship with your body now. Oh, it's, it's another communication device. Like I get in touch with it. I know when I'm too far up in my head as a creative, I, you know, I spend hours on end up in my head, up in my imagination. So I need to, um, you know, set moments throughout the day to, to anchor myself, to get back here in touch with the body. And, um, you know, I, I also worked out that if you're operating up in your thinking mind and you're completely disconnected from your body, then it's much easier to be triggered because you're up there. That, as far as you're concerned, that is the world. That is your world. Mm. But when you are in your body and you're here and you can feel your feet on the ground, and your breath, it's much harder to, to get swept up in whatever thought, triggering thought pops in your head. I can tell you right now, there'll be people listening to this interview going, oh my God, that's me. I'm up in my head all the time. What are some of the practical things that Nathan does that brings mm-hmm. him back to his body? And you mentioned a couple there, noticing your feet on the ground, anchoring mm-hmm. your attention in your breath. Is there anything else that works for you that gets you solidly into your body? Yeah, yeah. I think, well, for a starters is, is actually, I'll, I'll, I'll just take one step back. Mm. I, I, I often go through a period of tracking when I'm trying to establish what's going on. So without changing anything, I might go through a week where I'm journaling and I'm reflecting on my day. Where did I get stuck? What things were working? What kept tripping me up? And, and I pull it apart maybe even throughout the day where I've, I've been triggered or whatever, I'll just note it. Mm. And then I get to the end of the week and what you generally find is a bit of a pattern. And then I know, okay, well, this is, this is how I've got to, um, this is what I've got to do to remedy that. Mm. And so one common thing was, was spending too long up in my head. It's okay to using the brain as a, as, as a tool rather than a place to live was really important. So when it's time for me to be working or reading or whatever it is, okay, that's fine. But I set a clock, I set a timer. So every 
depending on how I'm feeling, if I'm feeling particularly sensitive, I might go off every, you know, 30 minutes or 40 minutes and just taking a moment, just even if it's 60 seconds Mm. to just feel your body, that's it. You know, if I really need help, I'll kind of literally feel my body. I'll rub my hands over my arms and, and my legs and I'll just kind of move my feet around into the ground and, and just pay attention to, to those sensations. Yeah. Even just um, the breath, you know, what's the breath doing? Just mm. if in a, any moment where you're feeling uneasy without changing it, just pay attention to your breath. You'll generally find that you're shallow breathing mm. and you just need to stop and let out some big sighs and, um, and 60 seconds. You do that 60 seconds every hour throughout the day. Mm. That's, that changes everything. So that's, that's, that's one little thing. I definitely meditate to anchor myself first thing in the morning. First thing in the morning before the the thinking mind starts to, you know, do its thing. And And how long do you do that for? Do you, do you do it sitting? Do you walk? What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's varied over the years. So if I'm going through a particularly sensitive phase, I'll, try and meditate for a good 20 minutes 20 minutes to 30 minutes uh, mm-hmm. first thing in the morning kids have changed that uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so even just 10 minutes between five to 10 minutes to do exactly what i just said is just to anchor, anchor yourself to, to your body and if you are journaling or you're you're trying to make some changes throughout the day then using that as an opportunity to get you connected with your intentions throughout the day you know, my intentions would change based on what I'm trying to improve at. So maybe it'll be something as simple as today, I'm going to lean in, I'm going to breathe and I'm going to lean in. Um, or maybe I'm going to, I'm going to take it slow. I remember my psychologist saying to me that, and I know I can move quite fast and unnecessarily fast, but he said, just low and slow, just low and slow. So even getting out of the car, I remember when he said that the first day I got out of my car and I was in my normal routine. I'm like, whoa, I just got out of my car and I walked into my, my, my studio so, so bloody fast. Like, why? Mm. Settle down. I'm not, I'm not rushing for anything. Mm. It's not actually getting me there any quicker. You know, when you're rushing, even emotionally rushing, you're not necessarily physically rushing. rushing. So low and slow. So meditation first thing in the morning for grounding and intentions. And uh, at night, I... Uh, I don't meditate so much now, but I, I just kind of, I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm a little bit more connected to my body in general. Exercise mm. is a huge thing. Yeah, exercise. So, and I think gratitude's another thing that really yeah. gets people back in their heart as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then are there any kind of pearls of wisdom that you want to leave, final words you want to leave our listeners with today? Yeah. I would say for me, when I when I reflect on, uh, my experience with my, my two biggest health challenges being leukemia mm. and then these physical mental health challenges later, um, some of the best things have come as a result of that. So now I start to see any type of adversity as an opportunity to grow, yeah. you know, and, and I, I carry this faith with me that even if it's dark and I don't know where I'm going because I've been in that position many times, it doesn't mean it's going to stay dark. Um, Continue to put one foot in front of the other. If you've lost all bearings, just with that faith, that's something, there will just be this little, you know, little bit of light and you'll, and you just head towards it and, um, and, and learn, you know, and you've got to, you've got to trust that 
whatever you're going through, I mean, it's, this is the way that I operate is, is that it's here. There's something that I've got to learn. There's something that I've got to learn. Yeah. And um, so adversity, rather than it being a battle, it's an opportunity for growth. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's our <laughs> resistance that creates more suffering. Yeah. You know? Thank Absolutely. you so much, Nathan. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. If people want to connect with you or know more about you, where can we direct them? Yeah, the usual uh, social media, so Facebook and Instagram. But I've actually, over the last year, I'm connecting live stream with people on a platform called Twitch. Okay. And so I'm there four or five times a week. We have a, um, not only do I just kind of do what I do here in the studio and chat with people, but I actually run a, um, a stream once a week that's more based around the more human aspects of being a human being, mental health, where we have conversations just like this. And it's an incredible community. And uh, yeah. I'll put, the, I'll put the links to that in the notes yep. below. No Nathan, what an inspiration and true light you are in this world. You've really shown us that no matter what our circumstances, you really can rise and shine again. So thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Now, if Nathan can do it, so can you. And if you like this podcast, share your comments below. What did you love about it? Help spread the love by sharing the link with your friends so that they can rise and shine as well. So until next time, remember, it's not what happens to you that defines you. It's how you respond that counts. Shine on. You can shine.